Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Many people have heard that psychiatric medications work to normalize a chemical imbalance. To a degree, that's probably a fair way to begin to look at it. But let's take a close look at that biological process by discussing what are known as receptors. James Wood is a psychiatrist at the University of Tennessee in Memphis, and he kindly agreed to walk us through the notion of receptors. Because of the time, we're going to limit the discussion to serotonin and dopamine receptors, but many of these concepts apply to other receptors as well. Dr. Woods, thank you so much for being with us. Please explain what a receptor is and what does it do? Give us an introduction, please. Well, you know, nerves have to talk to each other, and one of the ways that they have the ability to talk to each other is through a little chemical messenger called neurotransmitter. Are they molecules? What are they designed to do? They are. They can be proteins, and they can be just very tiny molecules, too, as well. Receptors can be either ionotropic, which just simply means they form a little bore for neurotransmitters to pass through, or they can be metabotropic, where they exist on the cell surface. And when they're activated, they generate the transmission of second messengers, which bring about protein changes and hormonal changes downstream in the cell. One of the analogies that I always give people is that the cell is like the radio transmitter and the receptors are like the antennas on the radios downstream that want to hear what the beginning cell was trying to say. Is that a fairly good analogy, would you say? I love that analogy, Abby. I've not heard that before, and I think I'm going to steal it from you. You have it. <laughs> so we, we hear about receptors with such names as D2, D3, 5-HT2, and so on. What do all these numbers mean? What Walk us through them, please. Sure, absolutely. Well, let's talk about serotonin. Neurotransmitter serotonin, we used to call it 5-hydroxytryptamine because that's what it's made from. It mediates a wide range of physiological functions by interacting with multiple different subtypes of receptors. And these receptors have been implicated in many psychiatric conditions. We've got several different subtypes of serotonin receptors for a total of about 16, I think, at last count, different subtypes. 5-HT1 through 5-HT7, but there's 5-HT1A, 5-HT1B. So these subpopulations have been described for several of these. So the perfusion of serotonin receptor subtypes should eventually allow a better understanding of the different and complex processes in which serotonin is involved. It's been a little bit difficult for us in medicine to kind of elucidate the different responsibilities of these subtypes. Despite the literature on serotonin being quite expensive, in fact, a recent Medline search revealed that more than 15,000 papers have been published just on serotonin receptors since 1990. So this ever-expanding list of serotonin receptor subtypes has kind of made it difficult to unravel the role of serotonin receptors due to the lack of specificity because serotonin activates every subtype of serotonin receptor. For example, let's talk about dopamine. We couldn't really fully elucidate the role of the D1 receptor in the brain because we didn't have anything that specifically activated or blocked the D1 receptor. So this lack of suitably selective agent kind of inhibited it. We're starting to get a little bit better at finding now agents that specifically act on a specific subtype of the receptor, maybe the 5-HT6 receptor, for example, or 5-HT7, so that we can know what that receptor does in the brain apart 
from dull ligands, which activated a whole bunch of receptors. There's a lot of talk about D3 right now, but I remember when I was in training and big antipsychotics that we had were Thorazine, Haldol, Trilophon, those types. Everything was focused on the D2 receptor. Now we've learned that it's not quite that specific to speak to your point. We even know that maybe some of the serotonin receptors were involved in schizophrenic and psychotic processes. So it's a little simplistic from what I'm hearing you say right now to say that D2 is what we have to hit. Yes, it's exactly right. It's necessary, but not totally explanatory of everything that goes on in schizophrenia. The actual pathophysiology of schizophrenia, as you know, as it arises in abnormally hypo-functioning NMDA glutamate receptors on GABA inhibitory interneurons between pyramidal cells in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And because of this hypo-function, we get a downstream dopamine dysregulation. We have too much dopamine in the mesolimbic tract. That accounts for our positive symptoms. We don't have enough dopamine in our prefrontal cortex. That accounts for our negative symptoms and our neurocognitive deficits, but our understanding even gets a little bit deeper now that we've been able to take a deeper dive. We know that D2 receptors, for example, in the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, that that mesolimbic tract that we need dopamine, our feel-good, actually, neurotransmitter in that part of the brain. We know that D2 receptors are important when we block those or reduce dopaminergic transmission to reduce the positive symptoms, but yet... We know that D3 receptors are very important in the brain for other processes like cognition, like impulsive behavior, like sexual desire in the ventral tegmental area. So the pharmaceutical industry, of course, is taking advantage of that expanding a library of knowledge to define drugs which actually target those specific receptors so that we can improve certain characteristics. The D1 receptor, of course, has been a very elusive target, but it's been a very promising target because it improves the signal-to-noise ratio of the prefrontal cortex. D3 is under investigation by a lot of pharmaceutical companies for female hyposexual desire disorder or drug abuse, for example. One company has a D3 uh, agonist for major depressive disorder that's well along in phase three. So these subtypes. You use the word agonist for people who may not know the difference. Tell us what the difference is between an agonist and an antagonist and a partial agonist. I mean, there's all sorts of varieties now. What's the concept behind that? Well, dopamine is the key that unlocks the lock. It is a pure agonist at that lock. You stick the dopamine key in the lock, you unlock the lock 100% of the time. A couple of years ago, I had a Ford F-150 pickup truck. My wife had a Ford Fusion. Our keys looked identical. They were both Ford keys. But if you put the wrong key in the ignition, one key would start the car, but the other key would just sit there and not do anything. It would actually block the lock, preventing the real key from getting to the lock. So the key that unlocks the lock is the agonist. The key that blocks the lock is the antagonist. The thought that came to my mind as you said that is where, if we can say it, maybe too simplistic, but is, for example, depression, is it a matter of the cells not producing enough serotonin, or is it a matter of the serotonin receptors not responding to the serotonin? And the answer, of course, is yes and yes. For example, our original model mean deficiency hypothesis of depression was based on the fact that reserpine, which is the dopamine depleting agent, 
actually caused a lot of, as you may remember, surface ill could cause depressive symptoms. These patients could even get suicidal on these drugs. So we knew that monoamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine and dopamine were probably implicated in the pathogenesis of schizophrenia. And we do have some patients because of genetic abnormalities that do not produce enough of a specific neurotransmitter. So for those patients, replacement of those neurotransmitters can be very, very helpful in terms of getting the patients over those specific symptoms that they have. On the other hand, we have patients who have genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms. They've got genetic abnormalities, which cause maybe a specific protein receptor or a specific neurotransmitter receptor in the brain to not be made, or if it is made, to not be functional. The example, of course, while we're not going in, the glutamate is the example of schizophrenia where those patients have abnormally, again, hypo-functioning NMDA glutamate receptors. So it's both a neurotransmitter deficiency hypothesis as well as a receptor abnormality hypothesis too. When we talk about monoamines and depression, when we give a medicine and it goes onto the receptors and pray tell it resolves the person's condition, does it cure it? Does it control it? Do the receptors change? Do they change in their population? Do they change in their shape? Or are we simply provoking something downstream that should come normally from the cell? That Again, one of those complicated questions. I tried to make it too simplistic, perhaps. The change in postsynaptic receptor density certainly is can be a permanent thing. For the example that we use in psychiatry, I use the example of tardive dyskinesia because it's considered to be a permanent illness because of prolonged D2 receptor, not D1, not D3, but D2 receptor blockade in the dorsal striatum, in the nigrostriatal tract is another way of putting it. If we block too many D2 receptors, we get an upregulation that those postsynaptic receptors said, wait a minute, where did my dopamine go? Well, I'm sure that if I grow some more dopamine receptors, I can snag some dopamine as it goes by. And by the way, I'll make those D2 receptors super sensitive so that they don't need very much dopamine to fire off. Sometimes when we reverse the dosage or we discontinue the antipsychotic, sometimes it may get better, but most of the time it doesn't. So that's a permanent change as well. But for the most part, I use the insulin analogy for example, uh, in diabetes. Diabetes is thought of to be in part due to an abnormally giving out of insulin in the beta cells in the islet of Langerhans in the uh, pancreas. So as long as we replace the insulin, we're doing good, but it's not a permanent. We don't cure diabetes for giving a month's worth of insulin, so we have to continue to give that hormone to elicit that effect. And we see that. So it's both permanent and temporary. If we look at any of the new medications, or even the older ones, we get lists of all the receptors that they hit, the D2, the D3, the 5H2A, and so on and so on and so on. And yet, for example, Vibrid will work with one person, it won't work with the other. Trentilix will work with one person, it won't work with the other. But when you look at the printouts, they are all the same receptor. Do we have any sense of why one medication works in one person and not in another? Is it a receptor variability, a structural difference in the receptors? Do we know? 
Yes, absolutely. Not every brain has read Dr. Stahl's fourth edition principles of psychopharmacology. <laughs> they don't know how they're supposed to act. And of course, by saying that, we understand that it's not only neurotransmitters, but it's also the substrates in the brain that those neurotransmitters are acting upon. Again, to use the schizophrenia analogy, we know, and probably in DSM-6 or DSM-7, we're going to move away from a phenotypic explanation of schizophrenia in terms of having catatonic schizophrenia or paranoid schizophrenia. We're kind of moving towards endophenotypes. We'll be moving towards, towards genetic differences, too, as well. Perhaps in DSM-6 or DSM-7, we might have GRM-3 schizophrenia. We may have dysbinding schizophrenia. We may have neuroregulant schizophrenia. We're going to be better able, by the results of genetic testing, to see if a patient who exhibits the phenotype of schizophrenia, the voices or the negative symptoms, we're going to be able to find out perhaps in the future, not too distant future, what specific receptors perhaps are involved. And then what we can do is fine-tune our psychopharmacology to reflect that patient receptor abnormalities, for example. So we're going to move towards kind of a brave new world, I guess, where we're going to be able to diagnose that subtype of schizophrenia. For example, in neuroregulant schizophrenia, we know that D1 agonists, although they're just simply in the early, early stages, phase one stages right now, can kind of help ameliorate the problem seen with that polymorphism of the D1 receptor. But if you have a problem with the D2 receptor, then our conventional psychotic may be helpful towards that. So, again, to answer the question, when we go to the drug dinners and we see speakers, and this, this drug, the 5-HT3 antagonist, you use the example of blasphemy. It's 5-HT1A partial agonist, the presynaptic autoreceptor, and people in the room will go, ooh, that's wonderful, that's fantastic. However, if the patient is exhibiting a lot of problems with memory, for example, then having a drug that hits a different receptor, perhaps the 5-HT3 receptor or cholinesterase inhibitor, might be a more specific target for that patient. And, of course, to kind of wrap it up, we know that sometimes patients that present are really more dissatisfied. They've got an adjustment disorder with depressed mood or they need, maybe they've got some core maladaptive assumptions or selective abstractions or something like that. I always tell my residents at the University of Tennessee, insight is the best neurotransmitter. That's so true. We tend to, unfortunately, not really define the core pathology, and we have to do it. We have to do it. it you know, it, another question comes to mind, and people always ask me this. Why does it take three, four, five, six weeks for an antidepressant to work? If they start an antidepressant on Monday, how quickly are their receptors, their postsynaptic receptors, going to be saturated with additional serotonin? What takes so long? Do the Receptors adapt? Do they change? Do they change their sensitivity? Or do we know what's going on at that level that helps explain, to a degree, what takes so long for a response to occur? Well, we do. But before we say that, before we try to answer it, and the answer, of course, has to do, Abby, with what you're talking about, and that's post-synaptic receptor changes, whether it's self-regulation, if we give an antagonist, like an 
antipsychotic. Or if we give a drug that brings about an increased amount of synaptic neurotransmission, like a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, in case we get a downregulation. And that process of upregulation and downregulation doesn't work immediately. We don't see it necessarily within days. So it does take a little bit of effect. But after having said that, we also have to look at our measures that we use on Montgomery Asperger depression rating scale or a positive and negative symptom scale. And actually, when we have looked at it in clinical trials, we actually see that we may not necessarily have to wait three to four weeks in the case of an antidepressant to see an antidepressant response. Now, of course, if they're totally well the next day, well, then we congratulate our drug for its placebo effect, but uh, it does take that time. But we're finding out now that it doesn't actually, for example, Dr. Shakish, we're at the University of Toronto, does very elegant studies. We used to think that the full antidepressant response, especially for positive symptoms, would probably have to take a week or two before those patients get better. But Dr. Kapoor has noticed, for example, using some different outcome measures that we can actually see some changes as early as three or four days after we give the antipsychotics. So of course, negative symptoms take longer and neurocognitive deficits can even take longer too as well. Maybe we're, we're getting a little better at understanding that, that these things actually occur sooner. But after having said that, we never want to overpromise our patient. I always tell my patients this is going to take four to six weeks because if they get better before then, well, then we get to pat Dr. Woods or Dr. Strauss on our back for being excellent psychopharmacologists. But if we don't, we don't want patients to think, well, this drug's not going to work. simply because Dr. Woods said it was going to work. The drug rep said it was going to work in two weeks. It didn't work in two weeks, and it obviously Yes, it is going to be a brave new world. And yes, maybe we will be able to subdivide further and more properly diagnose patients based on what we suspect the receptor pathology is going to be. A fascinating, intriguing future. Jim Wood is a psychiatrist at the University of Tennessee, and we took on a topic this morning and really needed several hours, but we had to cut it at about 20 minutes. Sir, I thank you so much. I think we touched on a lot of very important areas. I just say again, thank you. My pleasure. I think our audience, if they could just come away with the understanding that we continue to benefit from this increased understanding of these subtypes of receptors of serotonin and dopamine as the psychopharmacologic compounds they are being developed every day, as I tell my residents, to fine-tune the strength to make our patients feel more harmonious. Thank you again, my friend. Thank you, sir, and have a, have a good day.